0: That fiber, it's in the ground, it's going to stay there. It's going to be doing a lot of really good work on the communications front for a long, long time.
1: Welcome to episode 395 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. When Matt Schmidt was a Minnesota state senator, he was one of the lawmakers instrumental in developing the state border-to-border broadband program. Other states that have since developed similar programs use the Minnesota program as a model. Now Matt has moved on to Illinois, where he's planning on continuing his work to bring broadband to more people in more regions of the state. Last year, Illinois firmed up plans to fund broadband infrastructure as part of their statewide infrastructure plans. Matt will be working diligently on implementing the program. In this conversation, Matt and Christopher sat down to talk about what the process was like for Matt in Minnesota and what drove him to pursue better broadband for rural areas. They discuss some of the challenges he faced and what challenges he may contend with in Illinois. Christopher and Matt also talk about Illinois' new funding approach and compare the program to Matt's work in Minnesota. Now here's Christopher talking with Matt Schmidt, former Minnesota State Senator, who's now working to expand broadband in Illinois.
2: Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Christopher Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance coming to you, from sunny St. Paul, Minnesota, and the first ever interview that I'm doing in my own personal studio slash dining room. Welcome to the show, Matt Schmidt.
0: Christopher, it's great to join you.
2: Well, Matt, I've been wanting to have this conversation for a long time. You're someone that I've known for a long time. I really respect in this area. I've done a lot of good work. Now you are the we might break in the middle of this title for for an ad break, um, Deputy Director of Illinois, the Department of Commerce and economic Opportunity that sounds right, right. I sort of butchered it a little bit there, but that 's you're the you 're the deputy director, which means you 're the like a vice president, effectively.
0: <laughs> Something like that. Yes.
2: Um, and but what's important is that you're in charge of a, of a really impressive program. Frankly, I think the most aggressive program we've seen from any state, if anyone wants to challenge me on that because New York spent more money, I'll just say I feel like you're actually taxing people to get your money. New York kind of got it for free through the bank fraud um, lawsuits. And so we've never seen any state raise any kind of money like this for that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really impressive and and inspiring commitment that the state of Illinois has made to infrastructure generally. Last session, they invested $45 billion in their capital bill uh, for infrastructure around Illinois, 420 of which is going towards broadband. And so I was watching afar from Minnesota, and that caught my attention, and I think the state of Illinois is poised to be a leader on how to do state broadband best.
2: Right, so we're going to finish up our conversation on that. That's what we call a tease in the business, I guess. (laughs) But $420 million, Matt's going to tell us how he's going to spend every last dime. Um, But I want to start by asking you about uh, a program that's near and dear to both of our hearts, um, and that is the Minnesota um, Border to Border Broadband Fund. You were essential in making that happen. And, and let me just say that like, I feel like as we get into that, we should know. We knew each other from grad school. We did. Yes. We've got stories. Right. <laughs> Mostly of me, I don't want to pretend I was super studious, but like, I feel like I missed too many opportunities to watch Twins games with you.
0: But we talked Twins every once in a while, right. so that was enough. <laughs> <laughs> right. Some good years back then.
2: So, so let's just let's start at the beginning. You, you, this, you come into the Minnesota Senate as a young man uh, from a rural part of the state. And you set a priority of broadband. How did that come to be?
0: Yeah. So, you know, I joke as I look back and I knew enough to be dangerous, you know, thanks in part to our great work at the, the Humphrey School. And we had a telecommunications and broadband forum that I was a part of, an opportunity to do some consulting during the Aura era a decade back. So I knew enough, I think, to, to know uh, what needed to be changed and where the, I think the opportunities were at the state level.
2: Right. And you'd also attended the broadband communities events. Well, thank and you other very events. much. Yeah. I did that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, so, I mean, you made an effort to educate yourself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so I knew it was an in, in area that... That there was, I think, the right energy and uh, investment percolating in Minnesota. With uh, you know, folks like the Blandin Foundation and others had done really important work. Um, there had been past efforts to do more in broadband, and we knew that uh, you know, with the the surplus that the state was facing and the opportunity for some serious investment and in, in smart policy that paired with it, that we could make a difference.
2: Was that 2014?
0: I was, so I ran in 2012, 2012, and I always say, Chris, I, you know, I, I put 30,000 miles on my Jeep that I no longer drive. We knocked on tens of thousands of doors, 20 parades around southeastern Minnesota. Um, and the issue of broadband came up a lot during the course of that campaign, but it wasn't something I ran on. And so I think you know, we take office in 2013. Uh, we were staring down, actually, a pretty serious budget deficit at the time, and so there were some big issues that the state had to, to address structurally. But uh, a focus on infrastructure, and as our economy turned around and we started having some funding opportunities, well, that gave rise to a serious commitment to broadband.
2: And one of the things that I felt like made a difference was a listening tour around the state. And, and so this is different from what you just mentioned, where you were campaigning, you're in the office, and then you decide to go and listen across the entire state of Minnesota to what people are saying.
0: That's right. And so you know, turning back this clock here, 2013 um, was my first year in, in the Minnesota State Senate. And what we, we started out by doing is creating our Office of Broadband. We wanted a one-stop shop for all things broadband and state government, kind of tear down those silos that separate state agencies, uh, and also serve as a resource for folks who are interested in uh, improving their broadband From community to community around the the state and so we created the office in 2013 and then during the legislative interim that followed uh, we knew that we wanted to take additional steps on the broadband front and so I don't know why I waited until December and January uh, of 2013-2014 to embark upon a 20-city listening tour around the state of Minnesota. We talk about how cold it is outside today. (laughs) I remember vividly being in Park Rapids, Minnesota um, in January of 2014 uh, holding a, a kind of a listening session with community members. I think it was a Monday morning, and the schools had been closed by Governor Dayton because it was so cold. And my Jeep barely started up that morning. I had stayed at my grandparents the night before in the good old town of Crosby, Ironton. Made it into Park Rapids, not knowing what to expect. We had over 50 people in the morning. Schools were closed on a frigid day in Minnesota January wanting to talk about broadband. And that's when I knew that this was an issue that that folks really deeply cared about and wanted to to make some traction on. And so, you know, we, we had... Made several stops, twenty about around the state, leading up to the 2014 legislative session, and and that that roadshow, that that listening tour, gave us invaluable you know feedback on what communities were looking for, uh, and the things that we we took away from that is you know it's a big state, the state uh, should be a facilitator, not apply a one size fits all approach to addressing the challenges um, that the basic challenge was one of funding and, and market failure and that we needed an infusion of of state dollars to get the job done. And third, folks were tired of talking about it. They wanted action. <laughs> and so I can't tell you how many times I shared that message with my colleagues in the in the Senate and other stakeholders. And unfortunately, you know, I think the 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 perfect storm if you will. The right uh, factors came together for us to get the job done that year.
2: I sometimes think about this in relation to reading history and how conversations in the 19 teens about electrification. And imagine how people felt in the 1930s when it started being built to some of their farms. Uh, it's easy to read about that transition period. It's much harder to live in those 20 years, perhaps while you're waiting right. for it to happen. Because I, I just think about people that I talked to last week who are really tired of hearing people talk about it.
0: Well, exactly. I mean, it just, it's a great reminder. You know, All the work and the attention and the investment that's been made, there's still a lot of work Left to be done, and and arguably the hardest part is ahead of us. You know that that last five percent, ten percent in some cases, mm-hmm. is going to be the hardest for states to you know to drive towards in terms of uh, universal access and, and ubiquity.
2: So at the time you're doing the listening tour, there's also, this is the major priority for an organization uh, called, I think the Partnership for Greater Minnesota Cities or the Partnership for Greater Minnesota. There's also the Coalition of Greater Minnesota Cities. Um, It's uh, basically the smaller cities in the state, the cities that also the cities that are just not a part of the Twin Cities Metro. They did a a lot lot of editorials and op-eds and things like that. Uh, Business chambers were talking to elected officials about it. And so, In some ways, I think at the time, those of us watching and even participating a little bit felt like, wow, there's so much attention on this, it has to go somewhere.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, I'd I referenced it earlier that the perfect storm. We had a lot of great contribution, and it was the the Greater Minnesota Economic Development Partnership that was forming at the same time, and they had their own, you know, roadshow, so to speak, where they were engaging individual communities. I think uh, selling the vision of of collaborating over investments in Greater Minnesota rather than competing uh, for scarce resources, and I think it was a great vision, and and they pulled. The members that they were talking to uh, individually and, and also collectively, and, and the feedback they got is broadband was perhaps the number one issue in communities around the state that year, certainly a top three issue around the, the state. And so, you you look back and you really see an opportunity that, that congealed. You know, we had the, the Office of Broadband that had been formed, uh, Minnesota had turned. Uh, the corner on a decade of running deficit after deficit, so we were looking at having some resources available, not only to balance our budgets, to in, but also to invest in critical infrastructure. And then you have the interests around the state. You Blandin was doing what they they've done really well for 15 years now. Uh, you had the the partnership that had formed to engage communities around Greater Minnesota, and then you also had the work of the the governor's task force that uh, that was shining a light on on some recommendations. And uh, for Far too long, those recommendations just sat dormant in reports that were issued annually, and unfortunately, we had an opportunity in 2013, 2014, and the years that followed to actually do something with all of that.
2: I feel like the natural conclusion of what you've been saying is, and so everyone was really focused on making sure we got a really strong bill through to create a broadband program, and yet that's not
0: how I remember it. Yeah, I mean, here's the, you know, you look back, it's kind of like history, right? You look back and you say, oh, it's its so neat. This was tough. And, you know, right now I think people around the country look at Minnesota's uh, Office of Broadband and our border-to-border broadband fund is being nation-leading. And uh, in, in other states, I think to their credit, have emulated what we've done in Minnesota and, and maybe te- taken it a step farther. Uh, certainly that's what we want to do in Illinois. Um, <laughs> but I think you look back, it was tough sledding. Uh, we had you know, industry opposition, uh, certainly skepticism among uh, maybe some more senior members of our legislature and so it wasn't a slam dunk we had to work really really hard and I can remember in 2014 you know appealing to the governor's office hey governor you're going to have a supplemental budget this year I think hundred million dollars is the right investment to make and um, in the governor's office and uh, at the time is Governor Dayton and Lieutenant Governor Tina Smith very interested in what we were talking about very sympathetic but this was not included in their budget, and so that was a blow. Um, but fortunately, we were able to to build momentum moving forward. And uh, that that first year, we got a down payment on that hundred million dollars. We got twenty million dollars, and so we, we we cracked open that door. We got our foot in the door. And I think looking back, you know, every dollar that Minnesota has spent on broadband, his 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 been a great investment. And uh, I think the one regret I'd have is that we haven't done more faster in Minnesota. But the fact that the office is open, doing great work, and the fund you know continues to be mm-hmm. funded is a testament to its staying power.
2: I would really emphasize that bit about not having wasted uh, any of the money because the program was designed in ways that um, I think are, are really intelligent. And some states haven't taken that and understood the value of that in terms of making sure that anything that's funded by the state, usually it's match funding. It's all match funding. But but anything the state spends money on has to be upgradable to 100 megabits per second. Uh, symmetrical. Symmetrical, which means you're investing in, in long-lasting infrastructure. Exactly. Whereas uh, the federal government has spent a lot of money, billions upon billions of dollars on infrastructure that is obsolete before it's even turned on.
0: Unfortunately, that's right.
2: Now, I'd just like to say that I actually think that was one of the things that the my ideas originally that, that made it through because I was uh, I was working with some of the folks that were brainstorming on how to design a program like that. And so I take a little bit of pride in that authorship. I think I, you know, I say that knowing that I probably wasn't the only one. Um, but but, you know, that's something that I think we really got right. And I'm really excited to have been a part of that.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you. I think you know it's 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 great to look back, and in so many are are proud of the effort that we that we put forth in Minnesota, and I think that that's great. You know, I can remember, um, you know, trying to to put together a bill and, and and put the ideas that we were thinking on paper, and having great you know Senate counsel, for instance, who write the bills, who do in tr- incredibly good work, looking at me and saying, Matt, what are you trying to do here? This hasn't <laughs> been done before, and so um, it was a, it was a lot of fun, you know, uh, kind of inventing something new from scratch. And not emulating another state but rather saying hey you know if a state's going to get into this what should we do what sorts of things should we expect of applicants what kind of a technology should we be investing in? You know, what sorts of expectations do we have for long-term return on investment? And so that's something that, you know, I really point to. I think the, the scalability requirements, the fact that uh, we want to, uh, to engage providers and partnerships and communities around the state, those are the sorts of things I think are a hallmark of a, a successful program. Not picking winners and losers necessarily, but we're saying if the state's going to invest money, it's got to be serving our communities mm-hmm. and, uh, and end users well into the future.
2: And the, the program is open to all. Uh, very few municipalities have even applied, um, and right. which I think was one of the concerns of the small telephone companies originally. And the small telephone companies were, in fact, I think quite skeptical uh, and now are probably one of the bigger defenders of the program.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there was certainly a lot of skepticism among the provider community. You know, is this going to, you know, be focused on competition? Is this going to be uh, upending the Apple Cart? Is there going to be an opportunity? Heaven for us?
2: forbid it focus on yeah, competition. Yeah. And you know, and
0: so th- that's a piece <laughs> that I would say you look back. You know, we 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 didn't take that issue on head on, you know, we mm-hmm. didn't have a conversation about competition in Minnesota. And I think a lot of folks around the country are interested in that, in that conversation. We were much more focused on ubiquity and making sure that you mm-hmm. know, every last home and business and farm and community anchor institution gets connected. Uh, Minnesota's not there yet. We've got some work to do. Um, but hopefully, you know, I, you know, we're poised well, to, to get there within uh, the, you know, the, the dawn of a decade right. of, of such investment.
2: Well, this is where you can certainly, you can give me a hard time on this, Matt, um, because I think... One of the challenges that we've seen since then is, a, is a, by not taking on competition, we left the population centers in rural regions behind because they don't qualify. And so for years, they haven't lobbied to support the fund um you know I, to me and this is a there's we can and we have had podcasts talking about these policy issues i'm not saying it's obvious that you pick one way or a different way for dealing with how to deal with areas that already have basic broadband connections but you know as i remember it, comcast was one of the biggest lobbyists on the bill and they were never going to expand in rural areas they were never going to apply for a grant
0: yeah, and so I think you know I I respect a lot of the interests that were part of the conversation. I think if you look at how broadband is is provided and and how folks you know connect with the internet, it's it, it's diverse. You know, it's complicated. It's not one kind of provider. It's a lot of different providers offering different service. And I think that's great. I think it's good that folks have choice and there are complementary services and. The thing that we always kept coming back to was the need for making smart investments that, that truly would stand the test of time. And so I think if you look at the reactions that folks have had, you know, I think a lot of the fear and the skepticism, you know, did not prove out. That I think the approach that Minnesota embarked upon was very constructive and has uh, and helped a lot of communities and, and has helped a lot of providers, you know, get to areas that they otherwise could not. And so I think if you, if you look at the regrets, I think you just you want to make sure that a community that knows it's got to do better on the broadband front has a path forward. And, and give them opportunities for partnership, for leveraging funding, for making a vision that truly is rooted in reality in terms of being competitive in the 21st century, giving that vision a path forward. And so I think that that's something that, you know, if I were to, to look back and say Minnesota could, could do more of, is just making sure that we're not just striving towards basic ubiquity, but that we are putting our communities and our you know, home-based businesses and our school mm-hmm. children in a position to compete truly in the 21st century. And I think that's something that you know, I, I think we should always take a look at, is what we have good enough, not only for now, but for the years ahead.
2: So, let's talk about the politics of that moment again. I want to come back to that because we kind of glossed
0: over that didn't we, we did
2: and I, and, I, and i made a I made a mental note. I know that this is something that um you know I appreciate that that um i don't want to put you on the spot i, I you know it it can be hard to talk about things that that you know about in part because of closed room meetings and and seeing what's going on. And you don't want to say negative things about people who are also doing good things in your eyes. Um, I'm glad that you're out of state now. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Just in the sense of being able to talk about this sort of thing. And I mean, frankly, I'm I think you're one of the best people to be that I could imagine to do the Illinois program. So I'm thrilled about that. It's that's sort of what, where that was coming from. As opposed to, I wish you lived, you know, 400 miles away from me. Well,
0: thanks for clarifying. I was thinking you're, you're, you're saying that Minnesota just is uh, isn't big enough for the two of us, and yeah. <laughs> maybe that's true. Who knows?
2: So the point I want to get to though is as someone, I didn't follow this as closely, you know, people like uh, Chris Henjum, Tim Flaherty, Dana McKenzie was even, she wasn't even in the broadband office yet, but was like a a, a person who was like, who was thinking about this and how to shape the program. And then she was in the broadband office and she was still playing that role of, uh, of trying to think then with her, with her, with her state hat on. And people who aren't familiar, Dana McKenzie, I think, is one of the main reasons for the success of the program. But my point is just that there was a lot of people who were working very hard because leadership of of Republicans, leadership of the DFL, neither of them wanted to prioritize this. I think most of them were hoping you would just quiet down and go away.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think probably on multiple fronts that may have been the case. But, you know, we, we knew that we were right on this issue, and we knew that there was a need for investment and that just simply, you know, waiting for the market to take care of it we were going to lose decades. And so, um, you know, I look back now and I say we absolutely did the right thing. And uh, we have a lot to show for it. But at the time, there was a lot of skepticism. And where does that come from? Well, I think um, God bless them, but uh, industry is very well represented at the Capitol in St. Paul. And I think at the time I was counting, you know, scores of lobbyists. And I know over time that that number increased. And and I think the point isn't that they were – Hurting our our chances or undercutting our effort, but there are narrow parochial interests that are represented a lot of times. And so, if you're talking about you know my legislative colleagues, they were getting one message typically on mm-hmm. broadband, and uh, they weren't necessarily having constituents come to the Capitol rallying around broadband. You know, we learned during the time that it was a top three issue for a lot of groups around the state. Um, but if you've got your day on the hill and you're going to talk about Healthcare access or education,
2: rural transportation,
0: rural transportation, broadband might not come up in every conversation, mm-hmm. and so uh, that's something that that we've seen change over the years. The Minnesota Rural Broadband Coalition has taken off, and I think that's that's certainly added value to the conversation around the state. But you look at the the setting that we had in 2013 and 2014. A lot of what lawmakers knew was based upon their conversations with lobbyists. You know, representing a very narrow kind of perspective and interest. And that's just the way it works. And so I think in this issue and other issues I think it's a challenge for lawmakers to just make sure that you're getting a diverse view of the landscape that you're t- that you're asking your constituents about these issues, your your com- community members, your community anchor institutions, you know, I have without a doubt um, confidence that you know, if folks took the time to talk to their you know local libraries or their EDAs or other folks who are on the ground really close to these issues. They would know that the broadband is a top ticket issue. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the anecdotes that I just loved is on this listening tour. We talked to a lot of real estate agents, and they said, "Matt, it used to be in Minnesota the first question that a family would ask when moving to a new town: How are the schools?" And they said that's still an issue that comes up a lot. But typically in rural Minnesota, the internet access and if it's available or not is the first question that's asked. And so that that really was eye opening when you think of wow, you know that's on the top of minds of families as they as they look to raise their kids and locate in one part of the state or another. Just it just speaks to I think the different aspects of the conversation. And mm-hmm. that if you're just talking about the issue from one perspective and that of you know uh, the industry. You're going to get one piece of a very valuable conversation, but you've got to round that out with on-the-ground perspectives in your, in your communities.
2: Let me ask you, and this is a chance to, for, for you as a Minnesotan, it's hard. I grew up in Pennsylvania. It's easy for me to toot my own horn. But um, Minnesota, they, they drum it out of you at an early age. <laughs> so let me ask you, um, if, is there something that you and Representative, then Representative Simonson, now Senator Simonson, um, did to make sure that this would happen, um, you know, despite the fact that, that it was really the two of you against leadership?
0: It's a really interesting dynamic. And so you look back, uh, now Senator Eric Simonson from Duluth, he was a, a, a fresh face at the, at the Capitol, a, re- a representative representing Duluth at the time in the House. And so he and I carried the, the bill in 2014 uh, for the, the infrastructure funding, basically our border-to-border broadband bill. And we had a number of co-authors, and all of those folks you know, really helped us out. But it was difficult to, to get our legislative leadership to rally behind this, and I have to look back and I have to give a lot of credit to the House DFL leadership at the time, and I think that uh, the leaders that were in place were instrumental in making sure that this happened, uh, because I think that there was a lot of energy coming out of the House committee hearings uh, throughout the course of the 2014 session, and so a lot of a lot of credit goes to the, I think the House leadership. On the Senate on the Senate side it's kind of ironic because, you know, we had a leadership structure that was very heavily tilted towards rural interests. You know, our, yeah,
2: unfortunately uh, Senator Bach had most of his constituents had decent broadband at that point. And I, and I just have to soon. say
0: I you know, I don't um this isn't a criticism at all. I think it's it's really kind of an, an information issue. And mm-hmm. you know, and I think understanding where the challenges are and what industry is capable of and where investments are going. And I think that stood in the way. And and you know, perhaps there was an element of a, a young, you know, ish senator coming in and saying, Hey, we're gonna we're gonna go on a statewide <laughs> listening tour. <laughs> I'm not running for statewide office. Believe me, that's never happening. But the point was, you know, we wanna get these stories, these anecdotes are so powerful. Mm-hmm. And that's why we went around the state and talked about the issue. And and we had a lot of our legislative colleagues join us. And so it wasn't just me on a road show, but it was me and the local senator or representative of a given area. And so you start that conversation that was so meaningful in the moment, but also it's something that you hearkened back to in the legislative session that followed.
2: Yeah, I think, so, I think Senator Bach wanted you to do more listening. Yeah, perhaps so. And, you know,
0: I, I tried. I tried. Um, you know, so I don't criticize anybody. I, I think a lot of it comes down to, You know, competing priorities in a large caucus Mm -hmm. with senior members, um, perhaps a little information asymmetry. Um, You had kind of the red herrings of "oh, five G is coming; it's going to solve all our problems." Well, this is seven years ago, folks. No, actually, I think
2: that yeah. I mean, now we do five G. I think the four G was the line of the day, exactly. Yeah, because four G
0: was still being rolled out to rural areas at that time. You're exactly right. And so I think the point is, you know, all these different investments in technology, in my view, they complement each other. And we should never say, you know, one versus the other. But if the state's going to invest in something, it's got to stand the test of time. It's going to be a long-term investment. And, and I'm really proud that that's the tack that we took. And I think if you look at, you know, the, the map of Minnesota, we're filling that in. And it's, it's really great to see the progress that's been made. I think my, my main regret, you know, if, if there was to be one here, is uh, on the funding side, is that we weren't able to get significant, serious funding up front and we weren't able to to give communities and providers a chance to plan into the future. Yeah,
2: I was just, just going to say That's a big issue. That's what you can do now. And that's what's so exciting, right, I right. feel like. And this is where I had so many conversations in recent years. Because we have these, in Minnesota, we have these things called billion-dollar surpluses. <laughs> Others, a long time running. Yeah. Other states don't, aren't familiar with that. <laughs> so, I mean, especially our, our lovely state to the east, Wisconsin. Um, For instance. Yes. Um the reason I bring that up is that, is that I've, I've long said if we really want to get the most out of this program, we would set aside, you know, like maybe four years worth of funding so people would have a sense of how to plan. Um, local companies, I mean, the, the co-ops that have really made the difference, the telephone cooperatives in Minnesota of expanding access, and I don't want to say anything um, to, to denigrate the role of the, um, the local telephone companies, but I feel like Minnesota's telephone co-ops, a few of them have really been the leaders of expanding to new areas of rural Minnesota, they can only expand so much per year. I mean, they're small firms, and so and so. The answer I'd always get back, though, was, "Well, we can't commit future spending to um, you know the next legislature to put that money in there." And I'm like, "No, put that money in there now. Right. We have it. You know, you can you can spend it now and have it dispersed later, but it, it, it doesn't catch on with people."
0: Yeah. And I think that that, that's really unfortunate because, you know, I I look at a lot of public policy through the lens of a small business or even a family sitting around a kitchen table, not unlike the one that we're around right here. It's a beautiful table. It it is a beautiful table. And and thank you, Christopher, for welcoming me into your home here today. Um, But I think the whole idea here is you want to be able to plan, you know, into the future. Three to five years is ideal Mm -hmm. uh, for a small business to understand what's coming down the pike, what sorts of resources you're going to have available and how you might you know, phase projects. So in Minnesota you could only get five million dollars at a crack, but if you knew that you were gonna be able to go back and have a second or third phase to a project, you could do something pretty ambitious and incredible. And we never gave applicants that opportunity Mm -hmm. because we always funded it one year at a time. And that and that's just really regrettable because I think we, we, we knew this was going to be a valuable program and we knew that the need was out there. And especially after that first year, you know, we knew we were getting great applications and that, you know, great deployments were going to result from it and so it's it's too bad that that support for that didn't galvanize if you're going to do you know 20 30 million dollars a year you know that's okay Mm -hmm. but I think giving folks a chance to plan is helpful And I know that there have been some changes I think last year it was a a two-year appropriation Um, I I think a lot of folks would have liked to have seen more uh, probably a lot more but the point is it's a step in the right direction on the, the the planning side of things but you know I think if if we're going to truly you know solve our our challenge meet our goals, uh achieve ubiquitous access around the state. you know significant investments going to need to be made, and it's going to have to be sustained over a period of time and to give folks a chance to best utilize that, give them a chance to plan and that that would be my advice, so wrapping not up that you're asking for it
2: <laughs> <laughs> I am uh, wrapping up Minnesota though um you mentioned a couple of times disappointments. What would you say? I named my my favorite part of the Minnesota bill. What I think is is the most fiscally responsible approach, which is this long term. You have to invest in long term assets. Uh, what do you think is uh, is the most important thing that really came out of this uh, the border to border fund?
0: That's exactly it. I mean, I think we can talk a lot about speed goals, and we can talk a lot about areas that qualify for funding. And I think that there is a piece here about you know uh, making sure that deployments are made in a way that you know is efficient and makes you know sense from an economy of scale standpoint and we're not just kind of carving up the map to the areas of the greatest need but rather we're giving providers and applicants a chance to make truly um, ambitious investments that are going to change communities or regions Uh, but outside of that you know I think the the point here is that we are demanding that any state investment is going to be truly sta- scalable. And so it doesn't mean that you're precluding you know certain providers, but it means you've got to be creative in terms of how you leverage those state dollars and that the way you apply those state dollars to your projects has to be uh, in a way that will uh, serve a community, a provider, those using the Internet well into the future. And so that's the takeaway. And I think if you know if a state asks me how to do it well, well, there's a lot of things that we can say. But it's just, hey, make, make sure this is an investment in infrastructure that's going to be with us for decades to come. Mm-hmm. And I've said this a lot, but, you know, short of an overzealous backhoe operator or something like that, that fiber is in the ground. It's going to stay there. It's going to be doing a lot of really good work on the communications front for a long, long time.
2: In 2016... 2016- Oh, you are 2016. Oh my gosh, the memories of 2016. There was some surprises uh, nationally and <laughs> That's locally. That's an understatement. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about this as we transition into Illinois. I yeah. just want to, I want to, you know, find some salt and rub it around your <laughs> wounds. <laughs> but um, one of the things that that we saw, I mean, Wisconsin, for instance, in the rural areas, went from. Leaning red to deep red, you came from a district that I think was pretty much on the fence um, you know and they, they would trust someone who was from the DFL but also respected the hunting and fishing desires and and the fact that they might lean a little more conservatively on environmental issues or something like that. Um, I, I have a concern that I feel like the Democrats have decided that they can just win um, in the suburbs and they don 't need to reach out to rural areas and so, as someone who came from there i don 't want to miss this opportunity to say. Are, are we missing out um, on opportunities that, um, by a strategy which is just – has one political party kind of writing off a lot of rural areas?
0: Well, I'm, I'm not going to criticize you know, Democrats in the minority in looking at the, how to win. the electoral <laughs> map and how to get to a majority. I mean <laughs> I think that is your first goal is <laughs> you want a majority. You look at the situation Minnesota's in right now and the progress that can be made on a number of fronts if, uh, if the Senate were to flip again, for instance. You mm-hmm. um, know, I think that that's true. know, I don't want to weigh into the politics too much here, but I think the point is I think our politics are a lot better when you've got parties competing all over the, the state. Mm-hmm. And what I really regret over the last few years basically from 2016 on. But it, it, the lead time to that was longer. 2014, you saw some of the, the, the makings of this trend. And in other states, you've seen it long before that, um, where you know the, the blue urban areas get bluer and the red rural areas get redder. And, and that's really regrettable to me. And I, that's the thing that I absolutely loved about you know, serving in the state Senate the most. Not only did I have a chance to to represent my hometown of Red Wing in this beautiful, you know, swath of southeastern Minnesota, bluff country, trout streams, you've got the river, you've got some rich egg land and some great state parks incredible state parks folks i think some of the best in minnesota are down there uh and you've got these communities that you you just know the best bakery in minnesota oh geez don't get me started (laughs) but the point i'm making here is you've got these communities that you know if you make smart investments in infrastructure uh you open opportunities for telecommuting um that they're going to thrive. And -hmm. if you can attract young families to these communities, this is a shout-out to Southeastern Minnesota. I'm sorry, folks. It's a great place to live. And I think the biggest challenge they have is or vacation, (laughs) come down, spend your money. It's a great place. And I think investments in infrastructure and in in placemaking will make those communities vibrant. And it's not only true in Southeastern Minnesota. It's true throughout rural Minnesota and Mm -hmm. and throughout rural America. But if we're not making the investments in the critical infrastructure you need to live where you want to live and do what you want from a career perspective, you know, there's big chunks of our country and our state that are gonna be left behind. And so that's why, you know, I don't want to overstate the broadband calling, but it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And I think every and this is this is where we're at, every decade that we take off, we are hurting rural communities. And so when you look at the the approach that the federal government's taking. Let's not be victims of our modest expectations. Our rural communities deserve the same level of broadband access that our urban communities yeah, well, I have. think,
2: And I don't want to spend too much time on this because... But you're getting me ex- going here, Christopher. This is <laughs> no, no, an issue no, no. I'm passionate I, about. <laughs> and I agree with you. And I think you're making a point that I really want to emphasize because this is my concern of why I want to talk politics ever so briefly <laughs> with you. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, we're, we're opening which a, is a that, door here. You know, you have uh, an administration right now in power, which rural America put into power. And they are delivering poor policy for rural America in my opinion on broadband which I'm pretty qualified to judge and I would say similarly I live in a city that is going to vote blue we're going to have a blue city council we're going to have a you know a blue mayor I live next to another city that's like that and one party towns are not well-governed towns generally. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's merits to who's in and whatnot, but like fundamentally, like you said, we want some competition there. And so that's why I want to bring it up. I know that people listen to this show a variety of politics. Fundamentally, I would think that even if we can disagree on everything else, we should agree that people should be fighting for your vote and actually be afraid they might lose their seat.
0: You know, I knew that you were going to bring up the idea of competition. I didn't understand that's where <laughs> it was going to lead us today. But, you know, I think there's a great point there. And uh, maybe fodder for a future podcast, uh, or a podcast series. But I think, you know, again, I, you look at the challenges our country, you know, is facing, uh, the disconnect between culture and geography and in our politics. And, you know, this is one of those issues that folks on both sides of the aisle could rally around despite, you know, the noise that was surrounding uh, the policymaking. Mm-hmm. And it's true. It should be true in every state around the country and at the federal level too. And so I hope that we're able to, to dismiss, you know, pressures from different corners and focus on sound policy that, you know, this is going to sound naive, that does bring us together that makes sound investments for the future and positions communities around the state, whether it's Minnesota or Illinois or anywhere in between or surrounding to compete in the 21st century. And so that's, that's what's been inspiring about this work. I, I didn't go into it thinking I'm going to spend a decade of my life on broadband. You know, mm-hmm. I'm more of a transportation guy, uh, yep. to be honest. And this goes back to my Humphrey <laughs> School days. I've spent way more time on, on transportation projects consulting over the years than I have uh, on broadband. But uh, this is one of those areas that you, you realize, well, first there's an intersect. You know, when you look at the movement towards smart cities and, mm-hmm. and telecommuting and, and, you know, congestion management intelligent transportation systems but also it's a great example of of smart infrastructure we invest in it the right way it's going to serve us well into the future
2: well that brings us to illinois where, I mean, you're talking about good policy, in my opinion, at least, <laughs> not everyone likes to see raising taxes, but bold leadership to say we need better infrastructure, both for transportation and for broadband. We're going to raise the gas tax. We're going to raise all of this money and we're going we're to spend it. Um, it's, it's fascinating to me. And it's worth, I think, for people to know. So the legislature moved forward and they put this on a referendum and then the people of Illinois validated that, right?
0: I look at what happened in Illinois in 2019, and I'm just awestruck. They approached the session with an overarching value of equity in trying to produce equitable outcomes in in various aspects of state government, and so that really appeals to me. I think in in, in this point in our you know, economy and in our in our um, you know political lives, and so I think it's a really important emphasis to put on it. But the investment infrastructure loan, 45 billion dollars, it it sets a tone that you know. They're serious about making investments in the future. And I look at what Illinois accomplished in one short session. And as a proud Minnesotan, this pains me because, you know, I love my Vikings. I love my twins. I will always be a proud Minnesotan. But I think they accomplished, in many cases, um, what we've been fighting for for a decade in Minnesota on a number of fronts. And so it's great to see that level of, of, of effort. And uh, in, in my hope is that we get it right on the broadband front and other aspects of our you know, infrastructure and investment and elsewhere. And so the challenge is on. You know, you've got this great opportunity to demonstrate in this case, you know, how state broadband investment can be done right, how smart policy can result in in, in good outcomes. And so we're kind of at the cusp right now of, of getting this right. And so uh, you'll have to wish us well. So
2: another bridge to Minnesota, which is um, quite the double entendre, um, <laughs> is that when you were doing this, when you were working on this bill in Minnesota, I felt like one of the Pieces of resistance we felt from Minnesota's smaller family independent telcos was that they felt like it was an insult that we were saying DSL wasn't good enough. And I think that that's changed. This is one of the things that I, I, I think is really gives me a lot of hope for Minnesota is that we see almost all those independent telcos now recognizing that they um, need to be investing in these higher quality, higher throughput networks. Um, and your conversations in Illinois, I'm sure everyone's beating down your door to talk to you and to give you a sense of what's important. It, I'm, I'm hoping that you're hearing from people that they're all agreed that we need these very high capacity networks.
0: Yeah, you know, so nobody's been beating down my door like this podcaster from Saint Paul, Minnesota has been. Um, but I mean that's the that's the point here. You wanna get it right and you wanna balance interests and you want you want everyone to feel as though they've they've got a stake in this and they can be better off for it. And so that's been a deliberate approach that we've taken in Illinois. And I don't wanna say that we've been perfect with it, but uh if there's a, a public, you know, uh hearing or if there's a, a meeting or if there's an opportunity to, to talk about the vision for Connect Illinois and, and ways to make it Work, you know, I want to lean into that. I want to be part of that conversation, and so that's kind of how we've framed this investment. You know, we have fifty million dollars a grant window that opened up uh, recently here in early February. It extends uh, through April third, and so we've got about eight weeks for applicants to put forward their best ideas on how to uh, leverage this first fifty million dollars. just—that's <laughs> what's great. The first fifty
2: million dollars. The first fifty million, yeah. million dollars over a period of about two months. Minnesota has spent since you were push that bill through has spent uh, on the order of 70 80 million i want to
0: say like well, no it's it's over a 100 million dollars the state's oh, invest, it is. okay and i think that they've it shows what i know they've well you know the years <laughs> go by i think it, yeah. it, you know and, and so uh prior to the last legislative session, your number was true, mm-hmm. and so- um, But
2: Illinois is catching up fast.
0: Well, yeah, Illinois, by the end of the year, we, we, may, we may have outdone Minnesota. And so that's a challenge to my uh, <laughs> my uh, my friends and family and folks in Minnesota. Uh, we're, we're coming after you, up your ante here. Um, but I think the point is, Minnesota's done so much well on the broadband front. The, that we're replicating a lot of our effort towards that, and mm-hmm. so uh, we want to we want to borrow uh, from what has worked in Minnesota. We're cert- we're certainly putting more funding on the table at the outset. We're giving communities and providers and partnerships a chance to plan, which is critically important. But as we mentioned, the scalability piece, the expectations, the partnerships that we're trying to promote—I um, think the commitment, as you'd mentioned, that Minnesota's Office of Broadband took in 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 being a resource for all folks who are interested in broadband and being a constructive voice—that's something that we want to replicate. And so it's it's a lot easier said than done. But you know, my goal is that uh, in addition to proving you know how a state can can do this best, that we also leave a lot of the stakeholders who are involved in broadband feeling really good about the process, that their voice is heard. And to the extent that we're able to evolve our approach to this competitive matching grant program from one funding round to the next and get better along the way, that iterative process is something that I take really seriously. And so I think what, what we'll be talking about are, you know, uh, in a year or two might be very different than what we're talking about right now. Uh, but the point is, come back to this, We really believe that competitive matching grant funds work at the state level, um, that uh, adding value to to federal investment is the only way to guarantee that those federal investments are going to stand the test of time. So we want to be able to do that. Uh, And I could go on and on here, but I think that that that's the tack that we're taking. We feel really good about where we're at right now, but it's something that we're going to have to be very intentional about every step of the way
2: for people who weren't paying attention, what what you just said is actually fairly controversial in Washington, D.C. Um, about being able to add on to federal funds. Um, so right now, there's this big, I would say, pile of confusion at the Federal Communications Commission regarding the Rural D- Digital Opportunity Fund, which is the new Connect America Fund program, which was the old universal service fund. (laughs) Every administration has to change the name to put their stamp on it, pretend it's brand new investment. Um, But the point is just that um, in the rules, all of a sudden, without it being properly noticed and commented, I would say, we saw this idea that, oh, and areas uh, within states that are getting state funds are not eligible and retroactively could not be eligible for these high cost funds from the FCC. And and so just, let's just let's ease into it. Now, what is your reaction to this this concern from the FCC and this proposal that they basically not allow you to subsidize an area that they've decided to subsidize?
0: Well, first of all, I I want to approach this conversation, you know, constructively. You know, right. I think there's but a lot
2: But by the time this I, runs, it could be different. I'm
0: going yeah, <laughs> and so this is a very live conversation right now and you know, I just recently spent some time talking to folks at FCC and and I think we're trying to get a handle on, you know, what exactly is proposed and and what's next and um, the point is, hey, this is an election year and it looks like, you know, the October 22nd, uh, you know, date they have for, for the, the auction, you know, isn't a coincidence. And so that's the context we're operating in here. And that shouldn't surprise anybody. But I think from my perspective, we want to make sure that these investments are smart because, you know, from the state level, we absolutely need federal funding to meet our goals. Uh, there's just not enough funding in any state that has significant need on the, the broadband access front to do it alone. And, and so you've got to have that state-federal partnership. You absolutely do.
2: And I would just say that I would like to note you're saying that from a state that's putting an incredible amount of money aside and a state that doesn't have as much need as some other areas. And I'm, I don't want to minimize the fact that there's a lot of people in Illinois that don't have access, but you have more than average local ISPs that have made really good investments. There are other states that are much worse off than you are. So, yeah, so, so, so you really do need that federal partnership. Well,
0: it's a big state. Uh, we have 246 locations eligible for uh, our funding, and we have a lot of great providers doing really good work. Um, but you know the challenges with uh, with you know, broadband ubiquity, and uh, it's a lot of uh, you know, challenges with putting business plans together, the return on the investment, population sparsity. So without getting into that, the challenge is there in Illinois. We've got a lot of great partners. We've got a lot of great you know, opportunity with leveraging federal funding. But we put $400 million on the table, and that's not going to solve the problem overnight. We've got, to, our, we've got to go We want to at least double that. And in fact, to solve our challenges, I mean, we've we got to be looking at a, a leveraged investment of a billion dollars plus. Well, how do you do that? Well, you, you can get some matching funds from from local communities. You can get some matching funds from the providers who apply for your grant funding. You can get you know investment that's made outside of any grant fund, which happens every day, which we really, really appreciate. But you also have to look at the billions of dollars that Washington is and will continue to invest in broadband and how to get the most out of that. And at a minimum, states should be able to work with federal funding recipients and add value to those projects so that 25 by 3 becomes 100 by 20 or gig you know, scalable. And that's the point that we would need to make. We shouldn't be limiting any of our communities around the state of Illinois or of Minnesota or anywhere around the country in terms of what they can get long-term from a public investment. It's just so foolish to set our expectations that low. And so I really hope that you know, here we are in February of 2020, that there's a conversation that ensues about how to get this right, uh, that we've got a new era of state-federal partnership over broadband funding because there's a lot of work to do and uh, from a state perspective we absolutely need the federal investment but we want to be you know more active partners in this investment and uh, I think there's a long ways to go in, in in fully leveraging I think a state commitment with a federal commitment to optimum benefit and so I think it's a start of that new conversation so stay tuned so last question is
2: and and um, you know I don't want to I don't put you on the spot too much here but um, we had uh, Governor Dayton, who I felt really wanted to bend over backwards and make sure he didn't upset Comcast. Governor Walls has disappointed me a little bit in terms of the, the focus on rural broadband. What's it like working with uh, the governor of Illinois?
0: You know, I have to tell you, I have great respect for Governor Dayton and Governor Walls, and I do uh, too.
2: I just have a disagreement with them on pro- pro-
0: broadband priority, I guess. That being said, <laughs> right. um, I'm really impressed with the governor in Illinois. And not only did, you know, he lead on, on the infrastructure investment that we talked about, the historic $45 billion uh, that was put forward to capital investment in 2019, $420 million of which is going towards broadband. Um, but he's engaged on a a week to week basis. And so we've had a chance to sit down and talk broadband more weeks than not since I've been there. It's mm-hmm. on the calendar every week and something might come up on his end or my end. But we're talking broadband with with his team in our office and in that level of engagements inspiring because, you know, this is somebody who wants to see this done right uh, and who's going to be proud of this investment, and what it means to Illinois and it uh, knows that every corner of Illinois ought to compete in the 21st century. In order to do that, you've got to make smart investment in 21st century infrastructure like broadband. And so it's it's been truly inspiring. And that's, you know, the thing that makes the job really rewarding every day is, is knowing that, you know, you've got uh, a lot of folks uh, throughout state agency in leadership, communities around the state, and hopefully, you know— um, a, a great uh, cross-section of our provider community that are excited about this effort, that feel like we can all come out as winners if we do it right. And so that's, uh, that's kind of worth uh, the dawn of this investment. And it's really, it's a really neat place to be at. And I hope, you know, if we talk a year from now or whatever it may be that uh, we feel equally inspired, but uh, <laughs> it's a, uh, you know, a lot of work ahead, but we're looking forward to it.
2: Good. And I, I think it's worth just noting that I um, the things that Governor Dayton achieved in Minnesota, leading us to this path of billion-dollar surpluses, is, is is notable, and um, and so we can have disappointments and disagreements with um, while recognizing someone's record. Much like I think every vote that you took was terrible, except for those <laughs> on broadband. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Some may think that. Who knows? <laughs> oh, I'm sure some do. <laughs> but Matt, I've wanted to to have this conversation for a long time. I really appreciate you you coming in to share those lessons learned, and and man, I'm excited to see what Illinois
0: does. Yeah, stay tuned. It's, uh, it's a fun time, and uh, thanks a lot for having me over today.
1: That was Christopher talking with his friend, fellow broadband advocate and former Minnesota State Senator Matt Schmidt. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount helps keep us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song "Warm Duck Shuffle," licensed to Creative Commons, and thank you for listening. This was episode three hundred ninety-five of the Community Broadband Bits podcast.